Well, if you'll take your Bibles and open to Isaiah chapter 49. Thanks to those who helped me prepare on Wednesday night as we work through this passage together. I'm excited to share it with you this morning. It's our third Sunday of Advent, so it's this time that we've set aside to remember He's come and He is coming again. As you think about that first coming, the first coming of Christ, as you think about that first Christmas, I wonder what comes to your mind. Maybe for you, like me, the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about that first Christmas is just that, that picture that we've seen so many different forms of. It's a stable. We've got Mary and Joseph. Between them, a baby laying in a, a feeding trough on a bed of hay. Of course, as part of that scene, there's often a star, animals all around, shepherds who have come to see and to worship. And that's the mind, that's what you say Christmas, and that's usually something like that. That's the first image in my mind. Maybe it is for you as well. And that's appropriate. I mean, after all, that's the way he came. As a baby, born in an unlikely place to an unlikely person in an unlikely city. As we get closer to Christmas, we're going to talk more about those details, about Bethlehem and the manger and the entrance. But what we've been doing over the past couple of weeks and what we're going to continue today is trying to ask why. Why he came. Why is his coming good news? Why, in December of 2021, should that coming be comforting? Why should he give us hope? Or maybe we could say it this way. Why should it matter beyond a good story and pretty decorations? Why did he come? As we try to understand the why of his coming, I want you to consider this. That before Jesus came, born in a manger to a virgin, hundreds of years before that, he told us about his coming and why he would come. Say that again. Hundreds of years before his birth, Jesus himself announced his coming and told us why. Now you're scratching your head maybe. Did I miss something? Where is that? I don't remember Jesus before Bethlehem. Does Jesus show up in the Old Testament? Well, he does in many ways. And this morning, in Isaiah in particular, we are going to hear Jesus tell us about his coming. Now, I won't take you too far into the inspiration of Scripture and how this is all worked, but what we know is that he spoke not directly, but through a prophet. The prophet Isaiah records the words of Christ. A message in which he announces his coming, he tells us why he's coming, and he tells us why it's good news. So this morning we're going to read and consider Isaiah 49, and there's several different parts of this announcement, but there's one that I want to tell you about before we read it, because I want you to have this in your mind. One thing about this message from Jesus about his coming, something you should know is who the audience is. This is important. What we're going to see is that this message from Jesus about his coming is a message not just for the church, not just for Israel, but it's a message that he announces to the world. 
which is important for us to think about during Advent and Christmas season. The coming of Christ isn't just an announcement for the church. It's a message that's meant to be announced to the world. Let me say that again. This morning, we're going to consider that the coming of Jesus is an announcement that's meant to go to the world. Every people, every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, this message of hope and comfort and salvation, it's a message that Jesus has announced and has called us to announce to everyone. So Isaiah 49, Jesus speaking through the prophet Isaiah, talking about his coming, why he's coming, and who he wants this message to go to. So that's where we are, Isaiah chapter 49. We're going to read the first 13 verses. So I hope you'll follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read. Hear the word of God. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. Yet, surely, my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring back Jacob to him, And that Israel might be gathered to him. I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. And my God has become my strength. God says to Christ. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant. To raise up the tribes of Jacob. And to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations. That my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord the redeemer of Israel and his holy one. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. He says, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in the time of favor I have answered you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. And to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water he will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road. And my highway shall be raised up. Beyond these shall come from afar and behold... These from the north and from the west and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and he will have compassion on the afflicted. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. His word never fails. We've got a lot to cover, don't we? We're going to go word by word. No. We'll get through it, I promise. 
I'm not going to jump, go too far into the context. Most of you have been here. You know about where we are in Isaiah. A couple of things that you should know for sure. One is that this is written by Isaiah, who's a prophet, to an audience that's primarily the people of God. And yet, when we come to 49, there's a shift. Isaiah is still the one writing, but like I've already said, he's quoting someone else. He's quoting Christ, the servant of the Lord, the one who's to come. And what we also see is that the audience shifts. No more is this a message primarily for the people of God, but it's a message for the world. There's a, a wider audience now. And we see that in verse 1. Jesus, the Christ, the servant of the Lord speaking, and he says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Now, again, may take some work. We're used to seeing the words of Christ in red, right? Pretend it's red. Jesus speaking from heaven through Isaiah to the coastlands and to the people from afar, which is an Isaiah way of saying, as far as you can go, the coastlands, and as far as you can go, afar. This is a message for all people of all places Jesus is speaking to the world, a message that everyone needs to hear. And the message is about his mission, about who sends him, why he's coming, what he's going to do, what he's going to accomplish. And it's a message that should produce in those to whom he's speaking, should produce in the world joy and praise. And we could gather that just from the context, I think. But we see it very explicitly. And let me read the end for you again. Let's read the response that we're supposed to have so that as we're going, you can know what your response is supposed to be, okay? Verse 13, this is the response to the message. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt. O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing. This is what I want you to have in your mind. This message from Jesus is for all the people, and it should produce joy. If you want to start singing while I'm preaching... It would be appropriate, okay? Weird, but appropriate. This is a message that should bring joy. He says, sing for joy, O heaven. So think skies, think everything above us. It's a call for all the heavens to sing. Exalt, O earth. Think about everything around us. So you see how this is a, a full call for everyone and everything to praise because of what has been announced. The message is supposed to produce worldwide praise. One of my favorite songs that we sing this time of year is not a Christmas song at all, but it's a song about the coming of Christ. So we sing, and probably should have sang it today, poor planning on my part. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing, right? Everything above, everything around, Praise the coming of Christ, joy to the world. And that's the point that we have here, that the arrival of Christ should produce worldwide joy. And yet, maybe you're not in the mood for singing right now. Not today. Not this year. This isn't a year that I would call joyful. Well, Here's why I want to encourage you. 
Because this isn't joy for the sake of joy or singing for the sake of singing. This is joy and singing that comes to those who recognize there's hope. He's coming. He's a source of comfort. He's a source of compassion. Look at 13 again. Sing for joy, O heavens. Exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Why? For the Lord has comforted his people. He will have compassion on the afflicted. If you don't feel joyful this season, can I tell you, this is a call, an opportunity, a gift for those who need comfort, those who feel afflicted, to recognize there is a reason for joy. That's what I've been saying over and over for the past couple of weeks, and I, I really hope that we can believe. This is the message of Advent, the message of the coming of Christ. It's a message that should give us comfort even in the hardest seasons of life. This reality that things aren't the way that they should be, but they will be. And by the way, not because we deserve it. We deserve what's bad and much worse. And yet the promise is that Jesus is coming. And if we believe in him, we can be forgiven. We will have rest and eternal joy. This passage is Jesus saying, I'm coming, I'm bringing salvation, and this is good news for those who are afflicted. It's comfort from the comforter. It picks up that theme from Isaiah 40, remember? Comfort, comfort my people, says my God. I'm coming, there is hope, there is salvation. I feel like if I say it louder, it helps. I don't know. The arrival of comfort and joy. That's another song, isn't it? Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. That's what we believe about the coming of Christ, the first and the second. A coming of comfort and joy. The words of Christ tell us that he's coming and why we can have joy. If we go back to the beginning, listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention to me, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. So we have Jesus, he's called everyone, world, listen, pay attention, let me tell you my story. I was called, I was set apart, which does talk, I think, about him being born, but I think it's, it's actually pushing us back beyond that. That this has been the plan of God from all time, that through this one set apart by God, called by God, there's this plan for salvation. From the very start, God has had a plan. Jesus was set apart and sent to the world on this mission of salvation. And yet, what we say a lot is that that first coming, when he came and was born to Mary in Bethlehem, that wasn't the arrival that most of the people of God who were waiting for a comforter, that's not what they were waiting for. They were waiting for a warrior, a king, someone with royalty and power. And instead, he comes as a baby. And not with a sword in his hand, but according to the text, a sword in his mouth. Do you see that in verse 2? He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow. We can always count on Isaiah for really good imagery. Preachers like Isaiah because we don't have to come up with the illustrations. 
They're built in. So we picture someone with a sword coming out of his mouth, and we ask, what does that mean? And I think what he's telling us here is that Jesus was, spent, was sent not to fight with his hands, but he came to speak, and that his words would be powerful. His first coming was a message, what, of, of proclamation. He was the ultimate prophet, coming with this sword, ready to speak. What was his message? Well, his message was really twofold, wasn't it? It was a message of salvation and a message of judgment. A message that offers hope and defense to those who believe and a message that will strike down and condemn those who reject him. He says, I was set apart from the beginning and God prepared me by making my mouth a sword. I've come to speak and my words will be effective. They will pierce like Hebrews 4 says, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. He also says, I'm like a polished arrow. An arrow that's been crafted and cared for and it's prepared to fly straight and hit its target. And we put the images together. We see Jesus prepared by God for this ministry of effective proclamation. Bringing a message that will accomplish its work. And yet, when he says these things in Isaiah, through Isaiah, we're told that the sword and the arrow are still hidden. Did you see that? The sword, picture it, is in the shadow of his arm. The, the polished arrow, it's still in the quiver for a time. This hope of salvation that God would send was hidden away. Time's coming, right? It's coming, but not yet. But God, in that time, as Israel waits for promised Messiah, as the people look for coming salvation, we're told, God says to Christ, verse 3, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. There's several places in this passage where we could stop and spend a long time, and this is one of them. Because now you're wondering if I was right. Because I've been telling you from the beginning, this is Jesus speaking. That the servant of the Lord is Jesus. And yet right here, it's pretty clear, isn't it? You are my servant, Israel. I said it's Jesus. The text says it's Israel. (laughs) Which is it? In most cases, go with the text. I think, my, I think I and the text are saying the same thing, though. The context all around this verse makes it clear that the one speaking is Christ. It's written in the first person singular, whereas the nation of Israel is always written as a plural. Someone set apart from the womb of one woman. Later on, we're told that Israel is sent to bring Israel back. How does that work? My mom never told me to go and get myself and bring me inside. There's all these nuances in the text that tell us the servant is not a nation, the servant is a person. So the question I first asked is, is is Israel Jesus or the nation? But maybe the best question is, why is Jesus referred to as Israel? I think we have an answer for that. Remember God's purpose for the nation of Israel? He formed them as his people, and he told Abraham back in Genesis 12, through you and through those who come from you, Israel, 
I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. Right? He had a plan that through Israel, all the world would receive the hope of salvation. But Israel didn't do their part. They were unfaithful. They didn't keep their part of the covenant. Yet God raises up one through that line, through Israel, that becomes their representative. Think of the ideal Israel. The perfect Israel. The true Israel. The one through whom God will bring salvation. The one, verse 3 says, through whom God will be glorified. Some of you, that was fun. That makes sense. Some of you still aren't quite there, and that's okay. Just, you can take my word for it and read it more later. God says to Jesus, through you I will be glorified. God has a plan to bring glory to himself by bringing salvation to the world. The way he accomplishes salvation is through the one that he has called, set apart, and prepared. So we've seen Jesus, heard him, describing his mission, made like a sword, prepared like an arrow, for the purpose of bringing glory to God through the salvation of people. Up to this point, it seems really positive. And yet there's a little bit of a shift when we get to verse 4. Still the, verse, the voice of Christ, he says, But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. It's a shift. God says to Christ, through you I will be glorified. Jesus says, I've labored in vain. It's futile. All we have is what's here, but as we try to consider what, what does he mean here, I think first we have to recognize the relationship that God had with Israel and how that went. Then we think of the relationship between Jesus and Israel and how they went. God called the people to himself, but they rebelled. Jesus came to earth and went to the nation of Israel and they rejected him. In fact, they killed him. I think verse four is an acknowledgement of that sense of loss. That even after all he had done for them, the people of God weren't faithful. And this, it's kind of like the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane, right? We see the humanity of Christ, even here in Isaiah, where he says, it seems like I've labored in vain. I chose these people. I set them apart. I led them out of slavery. I gave them a land. And yet, for nothing. And vanity. Yet, as we come to the second part of verse 4, surely my right hand is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Again, the story of Christ is a story of rejection, of opposition. But what we see here is that even though Jesus sees the difficulty of the mission, he also sees the faithfulness of God, right? Even when the work seemed futile, his trust is in the Lord, and he knows that God is going to give him the reward of his work. This is about Christ and his mission, but I think there is an example here for us of what it looks like to trust God. Because isn't this the story of our lives so often? We do the work that God has called us to do. We do the good that he's called us to do. And yet at times, the efforts we make seem futile. And I know there's some of you, you are striving legitimately working to be faithful, to live in obedience, to honor God in your situation, to do what's right even when it's hard. 
And yet, for all your efforts, things keep getting worse, it seems. And maybe you're tempted to think, what's the point? I try and I try to what? I think we have a helpful example here. The example of Christ who came to a people who hated him and rejected him. And yet what we see in Christ is confidence in God. He says, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord. My recompense with my God. As we are faithful to do God's will, we can trust he will do what's right. Your efforts, friends, hear me. Your efforts at holiness aren't in vain. Your sharing of the gospel, it's not in vain. Your ongoing work to point your kids towards Christ, not in vain. Your honest work in a dishonest workplace, not in vain. And I'll say this for myself and for us collectively. What we do here as a church, week in and week out and in between, if done to the Lord, is not in vain. Surely God will do what is right and our reward is with our God. This is the attitude, the heart of Christ. He trusted God's plan and we should be thankful that he did because that plan was the plan for our salvation. He's describing his mission. We saw the calling set apart from the beginning. We see the preparation, a sword and an arrow. We see the, the end, the glory of God. We see the struggle, but the dependence on Christ, on God rather. And now we see the extent of the, mesh, the mission. It's a mission for the world. Verse five. And now the Lord says, think God the Father, the one who formed me from the womb to be a servant, the one who sent me to bring back Jacob to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. In him I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord. God has become my strength. It's all kind of a parenthesis describing God. And then he says this, verse six. God says to Christ, this conversation between two members of the Trinity that we get to hear, he says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserve of Israel. Only, insert maybe. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. One of those verses worth underlining, highlighting, this is the, the message, the hope that we have that God did have a chosen people, the nation of Israel, but that was not the ultimate plan. He says, I'm not sending you. My goal is not simply to reach ethnic Israel. My goal is that you would be Jesus, that you would be a light to the nations, that salvation would go to the end of the earth. It's bigger than Israel. It's bigger than any one nation. It started there, but the plan was always that through Israel, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Through Israel, salvation would go to the world. They were unfaithful, but one came from Israel who would do the work. When we get to the, South, to, to the New Testament, we see the to the world part, don't we? we? We know the Great Commission. We know Acts 1, 8, that... The disciples are sent to Jerusalem, to Judea, and to the ends of the earth. But this isn't a new plan that arrives in the New Testament. No, this was the plan of God all along, that Jesus would come, that Israel would reject him, 
that he would die, take on himself the sins of all who believe, rise in victory, and then that message would go everywhere. The father saying to the son, go to the nations. And what I want you to consider this morning is that this is the heart of Advent and the heart of Christmas. Jesus came so the hope of salvation can go to all. Something we must not forget. Every person, you included, myself included, all born sinful and deserving of judgment. Every person ever born is under the curse deserving of death and hell. Our end, apart from Christ, is eternal punishment. But Jesus comes and through him salvation is available, not just to those of a certain nation. It's not about family line or lineage. God sent his son so that through him salvation would go to the world. God says to Christ, I'm going to make you a light for the nations so that my salvation will reach the end of the earth. And yet, you know what happens? By the time of the apostles in Acts, they take that commission that God gave to Christ and own it. Let me show you this. Here's your homework. Read Acts chapter 13. I'm going to give you a part of it now. Here's the, here's the setting. Paul and Barnabas have gone. Paul preaches in Acts 13 a brilliant message about Christ. And the Jews hate him for it. And yet, there's all these people saying, can you come back next Sunday? We'd love to have you preach in the synagogue again. And the Jews are fuming. So Paul turns to the Jewish leaders and he says this. Acts 13, 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, Israel, Jews first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, brilliantly sarcastic statement. <laughs> Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles for God, the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He quotes Isaiah. This commission first given to Christ and now taken by his disciples. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It's incredible. God sends Jesus so salvation can go to all the earth. After he comes, he commissions us to now be the ambassadors to pick up that commission and to proclaim what he has made available. Over the last couple of weeks, we've talked a lot about the comfort that we, the people of God, should receive from the coming of Christ. That's an important message. Life's hard. We need the comfort that we can have knowing that he's coming again. But we also need this message that Christmas isn't only to comfort those who already believe, but it's a commission. It's a reminder of announcement that's supposed to be made to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord is coming, right? Our call is to help people prepare their hearts for the coming of Christ. 
We saw the heart for the nation starting back in verse 1. We saw at the beginning, Jesus says, listen, pay attention, coastlands. Listen up, pay attention, you people from afar. Let me tell you about who I am. Jesus was set apart for the sake of the world. And up to this point, I've made a big deal out of the fact that this is a message from Jesus. But there is a shift as we move past verse 6. Now we begin to hear more of Isaiah and God the Father speaking. And while the first half was Jesus announcing his mission, his coming, his work, now God the Father speaks about that mission, that coming, and that work. And rest assured, we won't spend as long in the second part as we did in the first. If Advent was longer, then we would just pick up next week. But I want to move us somewhat quickly through this last half of the passage because it's important for us to consider what God says about the mission that Jesus has just announced. Three things. We're going to see the success of the mission, the results of the mission, and the extent of the mission. So verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, his Holy One to the one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, they shall prostrate, prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So, Back in verse 4, we hear Jesus saying, my work seems futile, feels in vain. And now we see God the Father speaking to one who's described as abhorred, deeply despised, and subservient to kings. Here again, we see the conflict of the coming of Christ. He comes and he's rejected. He comes and he's crucified. But that's not the end of the story. The Lord, the Redeemer, his Holy One says to the one that's deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, subservient to rulers, he says to him, just wait. Kings will arise. Princes will fall down. Why? Because the Lord who is faithful has chosen you. This is a Philippians chapter 2 stuff, isn't it? He humbles himself as a servant, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. But God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name, that is the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and every tongue should confess to the glory of God the Father. Kings rise, princes fall, all in worship. Parts of this passage are telling us about that first coming. Parts of this passage are telling us about his second coming. And all in between. He comes, he's rejected. He comes, he's killed. He's coming and all will see and all will worship. What we see here is the success of the work of Christ. And through it all, he's kept and preserved by God. Verse 8, the Lord says in the time of favor I've answered you in the day of salvation I've helped you I will keep you and I will give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages we won't slow down much here except to say that God's the one who sends God's the one who strengthens God's the one who gives Jesus as a covenant remember last week we saw that in Isaiah 42 I give you as a covenant we talked about how Jesus is the covenant and the fulfillment of the covenant we see it again here God gives Christ as a covenant to the people. 
to establish the land into a portion desolate heritage. And we know that there was all these physical promises given to Israel. Promises of land, promises of lineage, promises of greatness. And there's an extent to which those are all fulfilled. But what we also know is that all of these point to spiritual realities. And what we have here is the reminder that God will keep his promises. Through Christ, the promise of coming salvation will be kept. The promise of rest will be kept. The promise of eternal life will be kept. And we see that this is a spiritual reality because in verse 49, he says, saying to the prisoners, come out. Those who are in darkness appear. Why does Jesus come? He comes to bring people out of slavery. He comes to bring people out of darkness. He comes and he calls himself the light of the world. Very similar again to what we saw in chapter 42, verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. Again, the Father speaking to the Son. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. What are we talking about? <laughs> this is Christmas. Why are we in Isaiah 49? supposed to be in Luke 2. Friends, my hope is that as we see Christmas around us, we'd be reminded that one came to set prisoners free. And our first response should be joy and hope within ourselves. Our second response should be to tell others. This passage talks a lot about salvation going to the world. Let's be reminded that those who don't receive that salvation, for them, it'll be a message of judgment. He came, he's coming to set people free from sin, free from bondage, from darkness to light. We must speak, but let me also remind you that this is good news for you because perhaps you feel imprisoned to a particular sin. Perhaps you feel enslaved what we see here is that Jesus came to free those who feel enslaved he came so that we can live in freedom and light change is possible this is why Jesus came so you can be set free from your sins for those who come to Christ there's forgiveness It's good news, isn't it? He's come as our Savior, and he's also come as our shepherd. This brings us to verse 9. He shall feed along the ways, excuse me, they shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. There's another sermon isn't it? And it's also a record, I think, four weeks in a row where we've had an allusion to a shepherd in our text. It's a metaphor we see all over the scriptures, that we are sheep lost and hungry. He is a shepherd who leads and feeds. He provides, he protects. In him, we don't hunger. In him, we don't thirst. No matter the weather, scorching heat, a sun striking, he protects his people. 
They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. He comes, he forgives, he sets us free, and then he becomes our shepherd. The one who protects and guides because he sets us free and then we keep trying to run back. And yet he's our shepherd guiding us and leading us and nourishing us and providing for us. It says he has pity on them and will lead them. I am glad that God has shown me pity. That he cares for me even when I am unfaithful. Even in my sin, he has died for me. When I wander, he pities. He shows mercy. He has compassion. This is our God. This is something that we have received. And it's something that he announces to the world. And here's the good news. Let's look forward to that second coming, that second advent. That when he comes, people will come to him. People will have received this message and will come to him from all places. Verse 12. I will make all my mountains a road. My highway shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. Behold, these from the north and from the west, from the land of Syene. We talked about this on Wednesday. Um, it seems, from what I've learned, is that when we speak of afar, that's to the east, the coastlands were to the west. He's speaking that they will come from afar, from the east. They will come from the north and from the west. They'll come from Syene, which may be a reference to a city down south. What's the implication? They're coming from everywhere. When he comes, he will have saved a people from himself, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every land. Isaiah 43 says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east. From the west, I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, my people. To the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Do you hear how he talks about you there? If you're in Christ. That you have been made for his glory. That he has set you apart for himself. And those whom he calls, nothing will stop them. He says that the mountains will be raised up. There will be a smooth path so that all people who he has saved will come streaming to him from all parts of the earth. I will make my mountains a road and my highways shall be raised up. It's a picture of how God makes it possible for us to come to him even when we would refuse, seemingly, right? Our sin, we, we keep rebelling, we keep, and yet he makes the path smooth so that we will be saved. He prepares the way makes the road of salvation one that we can travel. And this is the hope of Advent. Salvation has come and is coming. Jesus has come and is coming. And right now, we're in a time of waiting. And a time when for you, hope may seem distant. Can I remind you of how distant the exiles felt in Babylon as they waited for that first coming. Hope may seem distant. Rest may seem like an illusion. Salvation may seem far off. What I hope you would hear from the word of God this morning is that there is hope and there is reason to sing. 
Verse 13, sing for joy, O heavens. Exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Why? For the Lord has comforted his people and he will have compassion on the afflicted. Salvation has come. Salvation is coming. Take heart, church. There is joy, comfort, and hope. He's coming. 